We spent last week as a family at Topsail Island, North Carolina. We used to go there every year, but it had been a while uh, since we'd been down there, and we had a great week. Last Sunday, I went to a church called Salem Baptist Church, which is in Sneeds Ferry, just a little bit, little ways away from North Topsail Island, and the brother that was preaching that day and has been serving the church for the last months was is in his early 80s, and that week marked 60 years of ministry for this faithful brother. And I'm always encouraged to see people who have kept their hand to the plow and continued in the work of the Lord over the long run and how God continues to use people even to older ages and maybe even especially in older ages for his glory. Uh, Last week was a beautiful week weather-wise. The water was a little bit rough. Uh, There was a uh, riptide, moderate riptide warning all week up and down the North Carolina coast, which is not particularly unusual. Uh, but I was taken out by a rogue wave and donated some very nice sunglasses to the Atlantic Ocean. So they're floating around out there somewhere. But on the last day, we'd been in and out of the water all week uh, together and uh, we'd just come out of the water and I turned around and looked back out and the waves were coming in and about 50 yards offshore, I saw something dark and about five or six feet long that rolled right up to the top of the wave where we had just been. Now, for the record, I did not see a fin, but that does not mean the fin was not there. And we were trying to get our last little bit of water time in, and I looked at uh, two of my kids, and I said, well, that's a wrap. (laughs) I had had enough. I didn't want to take any chances because at first I thought it was something like a surfboard or something or maybe a piece of debris or something, but... When it didn't surface, I said, that's, that's going to be it for that uh, afternoon. And we had a good time together, though. It's a beautiful part of, of North Carolina. I always have a good time going down there. I know some of you vacation in that area or, or close by, at least. And we thank God for the time that we had away. I want to turn our attention now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to wrap up our study today in 1 Thessalonians, considering chapter 5, verses 23 through 28, and a message entitled, The End Goal, Complete Sanctification. Now, I think any time when we are working towards something or we have an idea of a desired outcome, we should have in view what that end goal is if we're going to work toward it. Otherwise, we can kind of meander uh, aimlessly in life, not accomplishing a whole lot of anything. But if we have an idea of what the ultimate goal is, then that can help us in the process. That can help us in our growth. And particularly as it relates to our spiritual growth, that can be especially fruitful for us. And the end goal of our lives, according to God's word, is complete sanctification in his presence. Now, the Bible tells us that God is holy. In fact, we sing the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which comes from the vision of Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and seated on his throne and the cherubim were around him and his glory filled the temple and Isaiah recognized his brokenness and his undoneness, his uncleanness in the presence of God. But if I were to say there is one attribute of God which defines all of the others, which drives all of the others, I would tell you that it is the holiness of God. It is the absolute moral perfection 
of who God is. And that's why God told Israel, be holy because I am holy. And then that was reiterated again by Peter in the New Testament. And the basic idea of sanctification for us is that because God is holy, he is redeeming a people for himself. And when he redeems the people for himself, he sets us apart. He sets us aside so that we grow in the likeness of who we are in Christ. So sanctification is very basically to be set apart for the holy purposes of God. Our statement of faith regarding salvation and specifically sanctification says this. Sanctification is the experience beginning in regeneration by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. Growth in grace should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. There are three aspects of sanctification that are going to guide the message this morning. The first is positional sanctification that we have in Christ, whereby I can say, I have been sanctified. So in other words, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus and we receive the gift of eternal life and we are regenerated and justified, declared righteous in Christ, we are also sanctified. We are set apart for the purposes of God, for his holy purpose. So each of us can say, I have been sanctified. But the second aspect of it is what we would call progressive sanctification. And rather than saying, I have been sanctified, I would say, I am being sanctified. This process continues throughout the Christian life. It begins with our salvation and it continues all the way until we're in the presence of the Lord. The third aspect is what we would call perfect sanctification. Perfect meaning complete, not lacking in anything. So we can not only say, I have been sanctified, or I am being sanctified, but we can say, I will be completely sanctified. And when we're on that side of it, we can say, I am perfectly sanctified by God and his holiness. So let's consider together these few short verses and then think through what this process looks like in our lives and what we should anticipate. First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse 23, this is what the Bible says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Pray with me if you will. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for this vision of holiness that we get from the truth that you have imparted to us. And we pray now that you would help us by the power of the spirit and by the truth of the word to understand what sanctification is, that it's not an old, outdated, antiquated word that is no longer used. It is a rich and full and spiritual word because it describes who we are in Jesus. And God, may our longing be that we would grow progressively to be more like our Savior, that as we look to him, that our desire would be as Jesus is in the world, so are we. 
And we pray that you would help us and that that would be a reality for each one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And so help us now, Lord, to learn, but help us not only to learn, help us to take it to heart and then to apply it to our lives. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The first truth I want to show you here about sanctification is that sanctification comes from God. It comes from God. Look at the first part of verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God is holy, holy, holy. As I've already said, he is absolutely holy in every way. Holiness is foundational to the very character of God. If we're going to understand God, if we're going to understand the gospel, if we're going to understand the Christian life, we have to have an understanding of what holiness is and why it's significant and why we fall short of it and how we can be reconciled to God. When we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is holy and completely other. He is in a class by himself. In other words, God has a superior moral excellency about him that is unlike any other. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 99 in verse 1 through 3. He says, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise his great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. Now I gave some thought to Psalm 99 this week because I'd just been reading the account in the Old Testament of the construction of the temple. And you remember that God gave that responsibility to Solomon. Uh, David was not able to do it because he was a man of war, but Solomon was given the responsibility. And it was this intricate detail that God gave to build the temple. Now the temple was uh, similar to what the tabernacle was, but the temple was meant to be a more permanent place of worship and symbolic of the very holy presence of God among his people. And in the temple was a place that was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Now you know that inside of the temple in the most holy place was the ark and the ark contained uh, the tablets later on, at least by the time of the temple, it uh, contained the tablets of the law or the Ten Commandments. But on that ark was a mercy seat. It was overlaid with gold. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, and he would bring a sacrifice for the sins of the people and blood would be sprinkled on that mercy seat and forgiveness of sin from God was requested by the high priest on behalf of the people. Now, all of this was a foreshadowing of what was to come in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus when he would be our mercy seat. When the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, would give his very life for us so that we could be forgiven. But also on top of that ark were two cherubim, and they were facing the mercy seat. But if you read just a little bit further about the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, it was about 30 feet by 30 feet. So it was a square. And the description of the Holy of Holies is that there were two cherubim who had their wings spread out over the entirety of the most holy place. And the Bible is incredibly descriptive in that their wings were each seven and a half feet, meaning that as they stretched out, they reached out over the entirety of the most holy place and they were recognizing and 
honoring the very glory and holiness of God that was present in that place. So I think what Psalm 99 is referring to is the most holy place and the cherubim who were there honoring and recognizing the great and awe-inspiring name of God. But it's also a vision for us of heaven that our great God, who is altogether different, he is in a class by himself, our great God, who is holy, 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 is surrounded by his angels who are bringing him continual praise and worship to his great name because he is worthy. Now, here's the beauty of it all. Not only is God transcendent, but God is also imminent. God has invited us into the most holy place through the blood of his son, Jesus. And we are given full and free access to God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it is all based on the fact that a holy God has declared us righteous or holy in his son, Jesus. And he desires for us to grow in that holiness. So God is morally pure in every way. Habakkuk said that his eyes are too pure to approve evil and he cannot even look upon wickedness. God is right in all of his ways. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 32 that his work is perfect and all his ways are just. So let me translate that for you. Every decision that God has ever made and every decision that God could ever possibly make is always right and always right in every way. Now, even on our best day, our motivations are mixed. Even when we are seeking to do the right thing, sometimes we don't end up doing the right thing in the right way, or maybe we don't do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. But that's never true of God. God always does the right thing in the right way for the right reasons because he is right in all of his ways. So this first aspect of sanctification reminds us that through faith in Jesus as believers, we are quickened and brought from death to life. That's what happens in regeneration, that that which was spiritually dead is given spiritual life. And in that moment, instantaneously, we are justified or declared righteous based on the finished work of Jesus. Nothing that we could do, nothing that we could offer for ourselves, no good works that could ever measure up. We are declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus. But also in that moment, we are sanctified. We are set apart. And it is a permanent action that God brings about in our lives And then we grow in the likeness of Jesus until ultimately someday we will be glorified. So I would say to you that initial sanctification is simultaneous with regeneration and justification. We are positionally sanctified by God at salvation. We are freed from the penalty of sin. We are given the gift of eternal life. And I can now say I have been sanctified. Now, I want to draw your attention just for a moment to a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And there are two verses in Hebrews chapter 10 that I want to point out particularly. And those verses are verses 10 and verse 14. Here's what verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10 says. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, it's interesting that the use of the word sanctified in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 is in the perfect tense, meaning that it refers to a particular point in time in the past, which is complete, but which has lasting consequences. So it took place 
through the offering of Jesus Christ once and for all. So don't miss this point. What God grants to us at salvation is what God secured for us in Jesus on the cross. So all of a sudden we come into the fullness of the gospel. We come to an understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. That though we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. That Jesus, the God-man, was willing to leave the glory of heaven and come into the mess of this earth. He was willing to be tempted at every point as we are, yet was without sin. He was willing to fulfill the law of God, which only he could perfectly do. He was willing to go to the cross and to offer up himself as the complete sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was willing to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And then on the third day to be gloriously raised. So when we think about our sanctification, we can't just point back to the moment that we are saved. We've got to point back to the cross to understand what God has done for us. We've got to point back to the truth of how our sanctification was secured to begin with. And that is through Christ who offered himself for us once and for all. Now, the use of the word sanctified in verse 14 brings out something else. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. And what it brings out is something that is characteristic of every believer. Uh, One translation is those who are sanctified, or we might simply state the sanctified. So in other words, in order to be called a saint, in order to say that you are sanctified, you don't have to have two confirmed miracles, as the Catholic Church would say. You don't have to arbitrarily measure up to some human standard that has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. And not only are you a saint, but you have been sanctified. This is because of what Jesus has done for you. It's not by measure of your worthiness because otherwise you would have no worthiness. So think about it this way. The death of Jesus is the basis of our sanctification from God. The work of the Holy Spirit is the power of our sanctification from God. And then the act of faith is the way that we receive sanctification from God. God. Now we'll not turn there at the moment, but you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul goes through this description of the horrific nature of sin and sinners and sinfulness, if you will. And right on the heels of that description of sin and sinners and sinfulness, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. Isn't that good news? That no matter where you've come from, that if your faith is in Christ and the one who gave himself for you once and for all, the truth can be, and such were you, but you no longer are. Is this not good news of what God has done for us? That we are a transformed people, that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, this is the hope of the gospel. And it says that God has done this for us and he is the God of peace is what our passage says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, what does it mean that God is the God of peace? 
Well, we have peace with God when he reconciles us to himself through the blood of the cross. We have the peace of God because we've been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. And here's the way G.K. Bill put it. He said, this is to underscore that God's sanctifying work is the instrumentation by which God gives us peace. Now, don't miss this. There is a correlation between holiness and peace. There is a direct connection in the scripture between having holiness from God and having peace with God and having peace from God. John Newton put it this way. He said, I am not what I might be and I am not what I ought to be and I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be, but I thank God that I'm not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. All the praise goes to God because sanctification comes from God. Second truth is sanctification includes the entire person. It's the totality of our being. Second part of verse 23, it involves your whole spirit, soul, and body. So now we move to the progressive nature of our sanctification. As believers, we are progressively sanctified and freed from the bondage and the power of sin over our lives. So we can not only say, I have been sanctified, but now I can say, I am being sanctified. I am growing in my likeness of Christ. Now, Paul uses three terms here to emphasize the different parts of personhood. He mentions the spirit, which is viewed as that part of humanity, which enables us to communicate with God. He references the soul, which is that part of humanity that enables us to be conscious of self. It's the seat of our personality. It is the very essence of our being. And then he also mentions the body, which is the physical part that makes our presence known in the world. It makes us recognizable as who we are. Now, some theologically view this as a dichotomy. And what I mean by that is they see a spirit and soul as being one, and then the body being the second part of personhood. Others view this as a trichotomy and see a sharper distinction between the spirit and the soul and the body. And I think what is important here, the heart of understanding, the point here, is that we are both spiritual and physical. So whether we see a a sharper distinction between the spirit and the soul, or we see it more as being unified together, uh, that's not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is that we are both spiritual and physical, having been created in the image of God. And it is God's will that our entire person be sanctified wholly, completely, thoroughly, all together in Christ. Now, our physical being, at least in the state that it resides in now, is temporary. The Bible describes it as these tents that we are residing in. So our physical being is not going to last as it is. It's the part that's going to go to the grave. 
Yes, there's going to be a final resurrection. Yes, we're going to have a new body. Yes, we're going to be glorified completely. But now what you see is temporary. The part that you do not see is what is always and perpetually eternal after it's been brought into being. So let me say it a little bit more plainly. Every person, when they're conceived at the moment of conception, has a soul and spirit and body, and they are created to exist eternally. But the difference is where we exist eternally. And while every person who has been conceived will from that point forward exist eternally, everyone will not exist with what the Bible calls eternal life. Those who are redeemed, who are in Christ, who've been forgiven of their sins, will exist forever in the presence of God, in the place the Bible calls heaven. We will enjoy all of the beauty and the glory of what God has made for us and what Jesus has gone to prepare for us. And those who are not redeemed, who are not covered by the blood of Christ, will be forever separated by a just God in a place the Bible calls hell. So we are both physical and we are spiritual. The scripture says in Romans 8 and verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 3 says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. So it is God's expectation that we would be progressively sanctified and that we would grow more and more in our likeness of the conduct and the character of Jesus. As he is in the world, so are we. Imitate me, Paul said, as I imitate Christ. And if we're honest here this morning, we'd all recognize how far we have to go for that to become a reality, for us to grow and to be more like Jesus, for us to develop Christ-likeness in the very ordinary and mundane things of life, as well as the more obvious spiritual and visible aspects of our lives. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 14 says, as, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. You know what happens to us in this old world that we live in? We get pulled toward the world like the old illustration of the frog in the kettle. As the frog is in the water and the temperature is raised progressively, he doesn't even know that the heat is rising. He doesn't know that he's getting to the point of death and destruction because it's so gradual that he doesn't recognize it. That's how we are in a sin-sick world. We do not drift toward holiness. Oh, we drift toward sin we drift toward a likeness of the world, but we do not drift toward holiness. We have to have an active process. It's the same way with your physical health. Hey, nobody drifts toward physical health. Hey, just let it all go and see what happens. You're going to drift toward sickness. You're going to digress physically. You're going to experience the consequences of it. You have to work at it. You have to acknowledge what you're taking into your body. You have to acknowledge the level of activity that you're involved with. You have to acknowledge the things that are important to keep physical health. And I'd say to you, it is the same way spiritually. You've got to work and be involved and be intentional and train yourself in godliness 
as Paul wrote to Timothy. So how can we pursue progressive sanctification? Let me give you some practical application here that I think will be helpful. First, you need to start with a heart of love for God and a motivation for his glory. Because that's what will help you go the distance. That's what will help you when you go two steps forward and three steps backwards. That's what will help you on those days that you're discouraged and you didn't live up to the measure of what you wanted to live up to. That's what will help you when you get impatient with your kids and say things that you got to for, ask forgiveness for. That's what will help you when you're not progressing as quickly as you would like to because sometimes our faith can digress into this idea of, of try harder and do better. It's almost like this therapeutic moral deism that arises where we're telling people to, to reform their lives and to get their lives right. So we get this concept in our minds, well, I'm going to take this little area here and I'm going to get this area right. And then when I get that cleaned up, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to work on this area. And it's not necessarily bad. But if your motivation is just to fix a certain area of your life, you're going to end up disappointed and you're probably going to end up, end up discouraged and failing at it because you never started with the right motivation. You've got to have a heart for God and develop a heart for God. So how do you do that? You do it through prayer and the Word. You know what happens when you pray and you seek God through His Word? The light of His holiness shines more and more brightly into your life. And you see those dark corners that need to be transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus. You see those areas of life where you're, you're not maturing as you should be, and yet the Spirit of God not only tells you what needs to change, but He empowers you to do it, and He helps you follow Jesus. And then I think you do need to be intentional about staying away from sin. The Bible says that we are to flee from immorality. And if we don't flee from immorality, we will be involved in immorality that will be destructive. And you understand where our culture is headed and so, unfortunately, much of the church is even headed to where the things that God calls right, many people are calling wrong. And the things that God calls wrong Many people are calling right, good, evil, evil, good, and not even by what they label it alone, but it's elevated. It's not only elevated, it's celebrated. And everything is turned upside down. And you think that doesn't affect us? Young people, you think that somehow that's not affecting your worldview? What happens so often is we, we drift toward that because we're bombarded by it. Our minds are saturated by it. Our hearts are pulled toward it. People that we like and maybe even people that we, that we love that we would call friends, they're believing these things and they're advocating for these things. And we look at it and we say, well, certainly that couldn't be wrong. And yet God says, here's the path. Walk in it. This is where life is. You've got to run from the things that God calls sin and not only run from them, but you have to aggressively kill sin in your life. There's an old term called mortification of sin. It's the killing of sin where you're recognizing the destructive nature of it. You're putting off the old, you're putting on the new. And as you do that, you're becoming more like Jesus. 
And I think it's just helpful just to live in an attitude of repentance where you're continually seeking a closeness with God and a spirit of renewal in your daily walk with him. Peter said, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 says, pursue holiness because without it, no one will see the Lord. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Jesus wasn't saying, get yourself pure in heart so that you can see God. He says, if you know God, then you're pure in heart because of the righteousness that you have in him. And then you are to live in a purity of life so that you can experience God in his fullness. And I wonder how many people in here that it's, this is even your thought process that you wake up in the morning and your thought as you wake up and begin your day is I'm a follower of Jesus. And today I want to be more like him as he is in the world. So are we sanctification includes the entire person. And then third and last sanctification anticipates the future. It anticipates the future. Look again at the third part of verse 23, that we would be kept sound and blameless. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we will be perfectly sanctified and ultimately freed from the presence of sin in our lives, whereby we will be able to say, I am completely, permanently sanctified. I have been sanctified. I now am being sanctified. One day, it will all be finished. Now, we are motivated toward holiness when we anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus. I say this often. I'll continue to say it. I think one of the primary purposes of prophecy is purification. I believe that with all my heart, that God has told us the things that are to come. He's told us the things that we are to anticipate. He's told us about his judgment. He's told us about heaven. He's told us about hell. He's told us about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that he's told us about all of these things is he wants us to be ready. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to not be embarrassed when Jesus returns because we've not been anticipating it. The preacher of old, Jonathan Edwards, resolved never to do anything which he should be afraid to do if he said, if I expected it would be above an hour before I would hear the last trumpet. Are we living with a sense of holy anticipation? There is a cause and effect in the New Testament. And here it is, among others. There is a correlation between anticipating Christ's return and living a more sanctified life. Five times in five chapters, Paul references the return of the Lord because he wants to get the church ready. To be, kept, to be kept sound, as verse 23 says, is to be preserved complete, or, or it means with in integrity. It means to be intact. It means to be undamaged. And I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 to 27. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. And he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. 
This is what Jesus is, is preparing his church for. To be presented as a completely sanctified peoples for the glory of God. And sanctification causes us to anticipate the future in that regard. The word blameless is a really interesting word. I read that uh, in Thessalonica, actually, archaeologists have found graves of Christians that had the word in their language blameless inscribed on their headstone. And it was intended to describe a Christian who had been faithful and who God had finished the good work in them. What an epitaph to have at the end of our lives that we've been found blameless in him and we'll be one day sinless forever. But in the meantime, we are to watch, we are to work, and we are to wait. Sanctification is a journey. It begins at the point of your salvation and it continues until the good work in you is finished in the eternal presence of God. David Pallison, the biblical counselor, wrote a piece entitled, Play the Long Game of Sanctification. And then by way of a personal testimony, he told of a friend of his who had come to Christ in his 30s. And he said, during my first months as a Christian, Pallison's writing, I had a friend who showed me God's patient power in sanctification. He was in his late 30s and he'd been a Christian for about 10 years. Before that, he had lived a life of immorality from his early teens into his late 20s. He told me, if you could divide your mental and behavioral life into a thousand moments a day, he said, 900 of mine were immoral. When I turned to Christ, I found mercy and I became a Christian and I, I received the Holy Spirit. But he said, 900 immoral thoughts a day didn't suddenly turn into zero. It became 700, and then 500, and then 100, and then depending on the day, some give or take. But what he was trying to illustrate is that there's a progression. We'll not attain perfection in this life in terms of our outward behavior, but we are to grow to be more like Jesus. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. And here's the good news. God is faithful and he will do it. So what comes from God will be completed in God. You should not walk out of here today discouraged as a Christian. You should walk out of here today as a most hopeful person because of what God has done for you in Christ and because what God is going to continue to do for you in Christ and what God is going to complete for you in Christ. And all the glory goes to him because he's faithful and he'll do it. I close with this little story. There was a story that I read some years ago about Billy and Ruth Graham who were riding down a long stretch of road construction, presumably not West Virginia, although it could have been. And they had numerous slowdowns and detours and stops along the way because of all of this road construction. And finally, they reached the end of the road difficulty and the pavement became smooth out in front of them. And there was a sign that caught Ruth's attention. 
And it said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And she said, those would be good words to put on a final tombstone someday. End of construction, thanks for your patience. In the meantime, we're all under construction. But we're either going to be like those stretches of road where you see the signs continually referring to the construction and there's not much happening. There's still a bunch of potholes in the road. The lines are all messed up and squiggly. The barriers are up. Or your life is going to be progressing to where it's beginning to get a little bit smoother in terms of your walk with Christ. And there's obvious progress being made. What best describes you? And are you hopeful for the completion of what God has started in you? Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Here in just a moment, uh, Pastor Eric is going to come and lead us in a closing song. I woke up on Friday morning with the song, There's Room at the Cross for You, in my heart, in my head. I, I hadn't heard that song in years. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. So I say to you today that if you don't know Christ, that's the starting point of all of this is repentance and faith where he begins a, a good work, a new work in you that he'll finish. I know that most of you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. But what I don't know is where you're at on that point of construction, how your progress is, but the Spirit of God knows that. What's God saying to you today through his word? What do you need to be honest with God about and repent of? Are you passionately pursuing him? Is conformity to the image of Jesus your heart's desire? It can be. It should be. Father, we thank you today for your word and this time that we've had together to fellowship around it. You are faithful and you will do it. And we honor your great name. I pray now as we come to this time of close and response that if there are any steps of faith that need to be taken, that people would come as we close out together in song. And that these truths will be brought to bear in our hearts and our minds and our lives even this week. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.